Yes, amen. You know, I know it's not Father's Day, but the one about where, can someone take the charger out of my room? I'm like, yes. Anybody else bought like 5,000 chargers because they keep just disappearing? I'm telling you. You know, I, I have four kids, so I know what a mom does, right? And, uh, but as I was watching this video and I just had to laugh, it just reminded me of all the little things that a mom is constantly thinking of and trying to direct and to raise their kids, to teach them all the ways of how to be a, a mature young man or woman of God. And <laughs> it's got to be exhausting. As much as moms love it, it just, I think about how much work and effort goes into all of it. And so I just wanted to say a happy Mother's Day to all of your moms, whether it's by birth, adoption, or whatever way that God has put you in someone's life. I look out here and I see a couple of who I consider my moms myself. And I just know that even in the mundane things of life, the Groundhog Day things of life as a mother, that God is at work and doing incredible things through you and by his spirit that you may never see or understand, but you're molding and shaping little young men and women into his glory. And I pray you never lose sight of that. You never lose sight of that in the Monday things of life, that even those add up to something great in the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we do pray this morning for Mother's Day. Uh, Lord, I pray and I give thanks for all the people who, ladies who have had opportunity to be a mother. Father, in whatever way that they have, either directly or indirectly, like I said, by birth or adoption or what have you, that they've got to pour into somebody's life. Lord, I pray that they always treasure it. Though they don't always maybe see the fruit of their efforts, Father, they know that it's their, they would know that it's their unconditional love through you that is making the difference in their lives and that has an eternal benefit, Father. Lord, I pray the rest of us who have moms in our lives, we will stop today and we will give them thanks. We give them a kiss, a gift, foot massage, clean the house for them, do the dishes, everything else on the list without being asked, Father, just as a way to tell them that we love them today, Father. Lord, I also pray, Lord, for our kids' ministry, Father, that you will put it on the hearts of some people to step up for our nursery and for our kids' ministry, to overcome whatever is keeping them back, that we may pour into the next generation so desperately what they need to know, the grace of God, in a fun way, Lord. They know church is an incredible and awesome place to be, Father. I pray you provide that this very day. Lord, finally, I pray for our word as we open it up, and I've wrestled with this text this week, and as we get ready to talk about this, Father, I pray we, this is a message, Lord, where we got to do work, where we got to think about how it applies to our life, Lord. I pray you'd help us do that. It's so easy for us to get distracted, to start staring out windows, and, and to start looking at ceilings, and, and to start, you know, thinking about what we got to do later today. Father, I pray that your spirit would overcome that in us. Lord, that you would do a work in us today because of an, it's such an important topic that it is. And in the end, that we will give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' almighty name. And everybody said, amen. 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 So this week, we are continuing our series in the book of Esther, which is a giant story, giant piece of history that reminds us about how God is work at work when we cannot even see him. As I said in the previous, this first time here, I'll give you a recap. Uh, Esther take place in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament follows God's relationship with the Israelites, who are the ancestors of Jesus. And in Esther, some of those Israelites are living in Persia under King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. And we're at a point in the story where Haman, who's the second in command under the king, has kind of manipulated the king Xerxes into issuing an edict that on a certain date, all of the Jewish people will be eliminated. All the Israelites are gone and plundered. Now, in response, a Jewish man named Mordecai, who's Queen Esther's cousin, goes to Queen Esther and says, listen, you are in this position as queen for a reason. You need to do something. And so last week, we saw Queen Esther invite the king and Haman to a, to a tasty dinner meal, a tasty dinner party. And they came. They had a wonderful time. And then the king said, listen, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. Just let me know. And Esther said, all right, king, if, if, if you mean that, I want you to come a second night to another feast. Come, come, come to another dinner party tomorrow night. It's Taco Tuesday. Come on tomorrow night. Bring Haman with you. And at that time, I'll talk to you about it. And so her plan is that night on that second feast to come and to try to save her people. And that's where we are today as we get ready to open up chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 2. It says, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast the king, Esther, and Haman. The king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your quest? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen, An queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold." I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Just about this time, it has Haman sitting there. It's probably hitting him that, oh my goodness, Queen Esther is Jewish. I did not know this. Verse 5 it says, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, pointing, that wicked Haman. <laughs> Women, you know, Haman spitting up his wine out of his cup. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden, which is never a good sign. But when Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And verse 8, And then the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault my queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face doesn't mean he really assaulted her. They had strict rules about not being able to touch, be near, even talk to the wives of the king in those days. It was considered an affront and an offense to the king. Then in verse 9, let's read this one for you. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. 50 cubits high, 75, 80 feet. And then the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, 
Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. So this comes to the end of Haman's story in Esther. In the book of Esther, we see a man who rose through the ranks in Haman to become second in command of all of Persia, the great, one of the greatest kingdoms of that time. And then ends up being hung like a common criminal in his own backyard. Today, I want to talk about, before we continue to see how God saves his people, what killed Haman. cannot see it. Did I die? I died. Oh, I did die. Oh, that's weird. There we go. Now I'm back. Ooh, this, ooh, this sounds good. I like the reverb on this. Now I feel a little Pentecostal with a mic here. Just need a little hanky to go with it. <laughs> then I can get all fired up. Wait, that's prideful to want to get fired up. We don't want to do that. It's a silent killer. C.S. Lewis had this about, say this about pride, that there is no fault which makes man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. Scripture tells us that pride is evil. It's evil. That it's a characteristic of Satan and that God will punish those who continue in their pride. As it says in Proverbs, anybody know pride goes before what? Yes, before the fall, or another version you might read, before destruction. So we have a lot of reasons to pay attention to this message, even though it is not the most exciting topic, not the most uplifting topic. It's not the most harm-warming topic. It doesn't give you all the warm feelings and fuzzies. This message can save your life, talking about pride. Even for moms, I realize this isn't the greatest Mother's Day message in the world. This is the worst Mother's Day message ever. But pride is even important to mothers. As you slap on the, my kid is an honor roll on the back of your car bumper sticker. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with the, my kid, up, my kid beat up your honor roll kid bumper sticker either too. 
All right. So when I say pride, what are we talking about? Because it's a word we use a lot, but we don't always give meaning to. And I love author C.S. Lewis. He gives one of the best definitions of biblical pride I have come across. Bride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. Pride is when your life is focused on you. It causes us to look at everything in our world in terms of ourselves. Everything that we do, our relationships that we have, are always there to support and benefit us. When you're filled with your pride, like I said, everything's about you. Your job is about you. Your church is about you. Your family's about you. Your kids is about you. Your marriage is about you. Your friends are about you. Everything is about you and how it benefits you and supports you. And it plays out in a couple different ways. There's two kinds of pride that I've seen listed out there. Maybe there's more, but these are the two that I know of. First, there's the pride of superiority. The pride of superiority. This is the one we, we, we pay the most attention to. And this is where we're constantly doing the calculation, am I getting what I deserve? We do this subconsciously. We don't even think about, am I getting what I deserve? It's an endless ego calculation. You're always adding things up. You're always looking and saying, okay, am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting enough appreciation here? How am I being regarded? How am I looking? How is this making me look? Are people respecting me? Are they listening to me? Are they hearing me? Are they paying me enough? How is everything affecting me? And you see it in how we react, because in all our decision-making and the way we approach things, we always think about it from our likes, our preferences, what we think and believe is best. And yet, like I said earlier, you guys have to do a lot of work in this message, because I could list out a billion illustrations to you, but they plays out different in our lives. So you're really going to have to work in this message. You're going to have to really want to look and see where your pride is at. And also, it's, it's not just asking these questions about avoiding other questions, avoiding other things that you don't like, that don't feed your ego or don't make you look good. Superiority, superiority pride is always saying, what about me? What about me? When you come into change in your life, what's your, what's your primary concern? Is it how it affects you in your churches? We don't like changes in our churches. Changes of the devil in the church. Unless you're the one that thinks of the change, then it's from God. Same in our, in our jobs. Same in our society. How does it affect me? This is the kind of pride I think that Haman struggled with. He struggled. He was constantly concerned with getting what he believed he deserved. Constantly. He wanted all the praise. He was upset when he didn't get the praise. He wanted everyone to bow. He was enraged when people wouldn't bow to him. And when you have this kind of pride, like Haman, everybody around you becomes a measuring tool. So as Haman's looking at everybody bowing, ah, they're bowing to me, they're bowing to me, they're bowing to me, making me feel good, making me feel good. Wait, this, this guy named Mordecai, he's not bowing to me. Why isn't he bowing to me? He should bow to me. And in the same way, everyone becomes a measuring tool for us. 
The things that we do are not there just to do them. The people that we have in a relationship with there are just not there for the benefit of relationship. They are there to feed our ego. To reinforce who we believe we should be. And we need it constantly. We need these these strokes from people. Almost like, you know, when we, we pet a dog. We need these constant reminders from people that they believe we're as great as we think we are. Now, we never would say that we're great. Most of us, I don't think we would say that we're great. But in our mind, because we make our relationships and our things about us, that's in terms of what we're saying. And yet Romans 12 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned. He says, don't be prideful. Don't think that you're a bigger deal than you are. And, and, and this is where the carbon monoxide of pride comes in because it handles, happens so subtly, we don't even see it. Uh, Joseph Epstein, uh, not to be confused with Jeffrey Epstein, he wrote a book on pride. And he says this when he's talking about this. He says, so many people hate snobs. He said, They just hate snobby people. But he says, you can only hate snobby people if you feel superior to them. He said, anybody that you can't stand, you can only not stand because you feel superior to them. And I think this is big right now, especially in our world of politics, because I watch my Facebook feeds and I talk to people. Oh, boy, there's a lot of feeling of superiority. All those idiots on the other side of the aisle. Those moron as a president. This has been going on for years now, this superiority that we're better than the others. And you see it the way that politics plays out. This is one of the things that's killing our society and our government right now, their inability to work together because of pride. When we start looking down at other people who we don't believe are as good as we are. We get this in our jobs a lot, too. And you ever worked with people and you're like, how is this buffoon have a job? We have a feeling superiority when we think we're better than each other. We don't even realize that we're doing it. When people make decisions in leadership and we start gossiping about them. I can't believe they did that. What were they thinking? Brother and sister in Christ, can we pray together? I just, this thing's heavy on my heart. One of the best excuses for gossip in the church to pray, say, I need prayer about something. And we go say, this is what they did. I'm so worried about what they're doing. They're not following God because I know what's right. It's the feeling of superiority. You know, and, and I was thinking about it. it started, when it hit big for me, it was when I was a teenager. Do you remember being a teenager? And I apologize for any teenagers right here. But when you become a teenager, do you know, not or do you or do you not believe you know everything? You do. I remember, oh, man, you think you know it all? You know it all. But in, return, but in reality, it's not a teenager thing. It's a human thing. Because we continue to take it through our lives where we're always so confident in what we know being the right path when we're passionate about something. And you see it when we get angry about things that don't go our way. It's the pride of superiority. Now, the other one that we don't pay attention to, and you don't really see this in Haman, but it's worth stopping and talking about, is it's the pride of inferiority. And this is where we calculate what we don't deserve. 
It's a feeling of inadequacy where we underrate our, our self and, and our abilities. Unlike the, the pride where we're calculating what we deserve, here we don't want to do a calculation because we don't feel like we deserve it. These are the type of people, and I, I guarantee you there's some here just by sheer humanity. There's got to be some here where we have such a low view of ourselves. Your inner voice constantly beating yourself up. You're very self-conscious. I mean, this is why some people struggle with compliments. You ever complimented somebody and you feel like you just punched them in the gut, gut by the way they react? Because of pride. That they're so focused, and we all do this in areas of our lives, we're so focused on a view of ourselves that we struggle to take a compliment. We're like, you know, I hear what you're saying. Thank you for saying this, but you don't realize I didn't do that much. Or I could have did so much better. I really failed. Even though I succeeded, I failed. This constant inner voice. And, and sometimes it comes from the way that you were raised. You, you know, you, you always believed you weren't wanted. Or you were seldom praised for accomplishments. Or, or if you got all A's and one B, your parents were like, why'd you get a B? What's with a B? And you could just feel like the failure. Sometimes our spouses will pour this into us. It comes from many places, but we have this feeling like we're not worth it. We're not worth it. In fact, I was talking about kids' ministry earlier. In previous churches, I'll talk to people, and they're like, yeah, I'd like to do a kids' ministry, but I just can't do it. I just, I would not be any good. I'd be horrible. I can't do it. And they really believed it, that they couldn't do it. It was this message of pride and focusing on themselves and their own ability. Now, I want, I want to be clear. This is not to be confused with humility, okay? Because the, the, a pride of inferiority, uh, inferiority is just obsessed with their own view as one who has the other kind of pride. They're constantly saying, am I good enough for this? Can I handle this? Am I worthy of this? This constant stream of doubt over and over and over and over and over in their mind. And yet, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, man, we all have a part. Now, we all have different gifts and different talents, but they're all equally as important. The person playing the music and the person preaching and the person opening the doors and passing out the communion and the person working the slides, they all have an equal role in the eyes of God to play. So this is not humility. In fact, there's a great quote for humility that Tim Keller gives. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I'm going to say it again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. But see, this is not what the enemy wants. This is not what the devil wants. In fact, there's a great illustration of this in the screw tape letters. Anybody ever read that book, Screw Tape Letters? It's by C.S. Lewis, and it's about a senior demon speaking to a junior demon about a, a patient, a, a human that's been assigned to this junior demon. Now, this is, this is just fiction. There's nowhere in the Bible that you get assigned a demon, okay? It's not written anywhere. But it really shows the work of the enemy. Now, here's Screwtype speaking to this junior demon. He says, you must conceal from your patient the real nature of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his talents, a low opinion of his character. Screwtape says, listen, see, to, to thwart the enemy, 
referring to Jesus, we must consider Jesus' aims. You see, Jesus wants to bring your patient to such a state of mind that he could design the greatest cathedral in the world and to know it to be the greatest cathedral in the world and to rejoice in that fact without being any more or less glad at having done it himself or if it had been done by another. See, humility is going through this life not thinking about us. It's about doing things and having relationships for the sake of God and for the sake of others. But screw tape's like, I don't want them to see that. I don't want them to be that. I want them to look at the cathedral and say, look what I have built. Look what I have done. Marvel, everybody, at my greatness. Why? Because if we're looking at what we have done, that's where we're placing our confidence. That's where we're placing our pride. And then, and, and then, we, then because we have the natural tendency to compare when we see other cathedrals that are not up to our standards, we, we don't say it out loud, but we're like, man, my stuff looks way better than their stuff. And in return, when we come and we see a cathedral that we know is just grandiose compared to ours, we feel inferior. We feel inadequate. And you take this to every area of life, of any area of where you excel. As mothers, we see as mothers, we see other moms that look like they have it all together. And they're like, oh, I'm a horrible mother compared to that. Look how awesome they are. But then we see other mothers who just like, man, their kids come to the playground. They don't even have socks and shoes on. There's a sucker stuck in their hair. And like, man, I'm better off than that. We do this in every area of life that we're important. We compare ourselves, and this is what Satan wants. This is what the enemy wants. And if he gets it, and pride develops, it's like a a giant Petri dish of all of these horrible things that come out of it. I'll show you just a couple. First, one of the things that comes out of pride is that it makes you a fool. Pride makes you a fool. Because it prevents you from learning from your mistakes. Why? Because people who are prideful are always self-justifying. There is always a reason what you did or a way that you, something that forced you to react the way that you did. Man, I saw this when Marie and I first got married. Every time when we get in a fight, she goes, why are you getting mad at me? I'd be like, listen, this is why I got mad at me. Because you did A, B, C, and D. And if you didn't do A, B, C, and D, I would not have to get mad at you. Self-justifying. When we get upset at things, we self-justify. Like, it's, like someone once said, we are great, our own greatest defense lawyer. We're always self-justifying. It's never us. It's always the situation or what has happened to us. Can you remember the last time that you apologized to somebody for the way that you acted? Hmm? Can you remember... The last time you apologized. So you know what? I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have said these things. Can you remember? If you can't remember, I encourage you to take a, take a stop, a long look at yourself. Because it's usually only one thing that leads to that, and that's pride. Because we're all human, so we all have plenty of reasons to ask for forgiveness during the course of a day or a week, do we not? 
When we're proud, we minimize our shortcomings. We minimize them. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise person listens to advice. But when we don't, because of our pride, we stay a fool. We never grow. We continue to make bad decisions. We continue to damage relationships because of our pride. I mean, some of you have spent probably years not listening to your spouse to the point they've probably given up or not listening to your boss or your parents, your church leadership, or your, or your, your mature in Christ Christian brothers and sisters. And normally you find people who, who are stuck in pride, they don't have close relationships. Let me ask you right now, who do you have in your life where you share your, your dirty stuff with? Where you said, man, I was a jerk this week to so-and-so. I need you to pray for me. I need you to hold accountable. Who do you have in your life who can call you out that you listen to? People who overcome the sin of pride in their lives have people who they listen to who call them out and they respond. See, humble people, you don't need to stand on your own dignity. Humble people don't need to do that. They can laugh at themselves. They can say, man, I got that wrong. I got it wrong. You know what? My bad. They can say, here are my weaknesses. Here are all my dirty dirties. Okay? They can handle people calling them out. And as a result, they grow and they learn fast. Man, when I come across, I do a lot of marriage counseling in my life. And when I see in the marriages, those that will be married five years or 10 years or 20 years, you can tell the marriages where pride is at root and those are at not. Because the ones that are at not, they've grown, they, they grew fast. They overcame their stuff. Now, there's always new stuff in marriages, but they work through it because the pride is not there. I'll tell you right now, anytime I meet with a couple that's been together 15, 20, 25 years, and they still have these deep-rooted problems, I'll tell you what's right at the center. It's pride either the superior pride or the inferior type of pride. Humble people want to find out their weaknesses. That doesn't mean it's not fun. I hate when people come and sit down and say, look, Jeff, you're a jerk. Let me just tell you. I don't enjoy that. And like everybody else, my first thought is like, who are you? Let me tell you why I had to do this. But in that moment, and we all have these moments of defensiveness, boom, we got to stop. As we grow, do we sit in that and say, look, it was not me, it was them, let me tell you. Or do we stop and say, okay, wait, what is the Lord trying to show me here? In this peachy dish of pride, you know what else grows? Pain grows because it causes us to hurt other people. I mean, you remember when I started all this? Remember Haman? He, was, he, was, he got crowned everything, and he's walking through the town, and everybody's supposed to bow to him, and Mordecai's like, no, thank you. And he was enraged, right? And so what did he plan to do? He planned to have all of the Israelites eliminated and Mordecai. This is how angry he was. He goes, Haman's like, I am going to remove the people out of my life who do not know how important I am, who are not going to give this to me. I'm going to remove them. I'm a room out of my life. We do this, man. We will walk away from our lives. We'll walk away from friendships and relationships because we don't like what we get out of that. We walk away from churches. Man, when so our boss doesn't treat us right one day, what's our first thought? I'm going to go find me another job, someone who will appreciate me. We walk away. Or we don't even, or maybe we don't walk away, maybe because we're in a marriage or we're in a family and we can't get out of that relationship, but we will close the relationship down. The relationship will grow cold. We will withdraw ourselves from them. You ain't going to get 
I need, that's fine. Think about how many relationships have just grown cold and became mechanic because people turn off a part of their heart to the other person because that person is not giving me what I need. It causes us to use people, pride does. Man, you remember when you were in school? I don't know which one. Some of you were super popular kids. Some of you were the kids that got, like, you know, the swirly where your head was stuck down the toilet and was flushed. And that's okay. There's no shame in that, right? Right? I'm really curious to know who that was, by the way. But what did we do? We wanted to be popular in school, didn't we? Right? We wanted all the kids to know how popular we were. We wanted to be like the other popular kids. And so we would get near the popular kids, wouldn't we? We would, like, work in. Maybe it was just me. I'd try to get near the popular kids kind of be friends with them, because then I would become popular. And so then that means the kids that they didn't like, I would not like, and I would make fun of, right? Because that boosted my self-esteem. That boosted my pride. That boosted my stock. And this is early. I'm talking, we're talking 12, 13, 14. These temptations to build up our own pride are there. It's not something that weighs for adulthood. And so we use people. Man, I'll say, I've watched it in churches. You watch people, they have an agenda that they want to get accomplished, so they'll move themselves closer to the important people in the church, people that can help get them where they want to go. We do this in every area of life. We use people to get what we want. Or we get angry. That's another reason we hurt people. When people don't give us the respect that we want or treat us the way that we treated or give us the promotion that we want or the pay that we want or they don't agree with our idea or they don't come ask us before doing something, we get angry. We get upset. We get irritable. And we let them know it. We let bitterness grow in our hearts, especially if they're people of authority in our lives. Because you know what? When you have someone in authority, you can't always do what you want to change things, can you? You don't really have the power. And so what? You allow bitterness to grow. And so then you make their life tough. I mean, I've had some, I told you this a few weeks ago. I've had some bosses, like I'm sure that you have, and I'm like, how does this person function every day? How do they get dressed, let alone lead people? I know if you've ever been in the workforce, you know this feeling. And I allowed that pride to get into me where I made their lives horrible. Because I'm constantly, even if I was right, which I was most of the time. Uh, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Just, just kidding. But I made their lives horrible. And I was a horrible witness for Christ because of it. Because of my pride. And it leads to so many horrible things. So many horrible things. Have you ever asked yourself why pride even exists? I mean, why does it even exist? Let me tell you why it exists. Because we were created by God, and he put inside of us, made in his image, a need to have worth and to have value and to feel love and to have purpose. It's ingrained in every single one of us. I mean, look at Haman. Is this not why he was so upset that Mordecai would not bow to him? Like, I'm in this position. I'm in this power, and you're not bowing to me. You're not giving me this. You're not giving me what I deserve. Because it was an attack on Haman's worth. I mean, remember what he said to his wife and friends after attending the first feast of the queen? 
He said, look, I have everything. I'm going to paraphrase. He said, basically, I have everything. I'm second in command. I am so awesome that the king and queen will dine with me alone. And yet it means, he says this, it means nothing to me. All of this means nothing because of this Jew named Mordecai. One guy he was letting have complete control of his life. Because of pride. Because he was looking to people to give him this need of worth and of value and of purpose. He was dependent on everybody else. And when you strip it all that away, that's what we're all looking for. You all have a desire to be loved. You do. You want to be loved. You want to know that you matter. You want to be seen and have purpose and know that you're making a difference. And so we look around to have it filled. Just like Haman, he looked to the king. He looked to the king to give him this worth, to give him this role. And he looked for confirmation from the other people. And obviously it failed him, like any time that we'll look to anybody in our lives other than looking to Jesus. Haman was looking to a king. He's just looking to a king. The problem is, is he was looking to the wrong king. Jesus says that if you want to know your worth and your value, you have to look to him. And here's how you find it. First Peter 2, he says, He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, by your wounds you have been healed. What happens if you believe this statement? If you believe the statement that you were separated from God by sin, that you are uh, in tyranny against God, that you are a traitor to God, that's what sin is. What if you believe that and then know that God, who had the right right to kill you, came and actually died for you? What if you believed that, not here but just in your heart? I'll tell you what would happen. You would realize that you don't deserve anything. You don't deserve anything. There would be nothing for you to stake your pride in. But that's a good thing. It's a good thing to realize that. Because in that moment, when you realize that you can no longer look to yourself, you start to look to God. And I'll tell you right now, any of us here who struggle with pride, it's because we are not looking to God. We are not looking to the Savior who died for our sins and then tells us that when we put our faith in Christ, he adopts us as a son or daughter of God. Think about that. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, says he adopts you as a son or father of God. A son, I mean a son or a child or daughter of God. A child of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, of the great I am, of the first and the last. This is where your worth should be. This is where your value should be. And like any child of any king, you don't have to work it and you don't have to earn it. You just have to take your eyes off yourself and look to him. And anybody who's done this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, some of you, you sit here and you're like, yeah, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, but I sure don't feel it. I'm going to tell you one of the stark reasons why you don't feel it. Pride is like a weed. You don't need to do anything to fertilize it, to care for it. It's going to grow and it's going to spread. Anybody who mows and takes care of their lawn, they know what I'm talking about. But finding your worth and humility in Christ, it, it needs to be fertilized. It needs to be aerated. It needs to be dethatched, watered, and nurtured to have a chance for healthy growth. 
And that, that's, do you know that's why we come together to sing? That's why we come together to preach the word of God. This is why I tell you to get in a small group with other people who can study the word of God. This is why I tell you to serve. This is why I tell you every day to be praying and reading your Bible. Because in every one of these moments, you're reminding yourself that your worth is in the king and not in yourself. And that the more that you do that, the more that it'll take hold of your life. And the more that you don't, the more you'll keep looking to yourself and to other people to find pride. And I guarantee you, if you don't have that worth in Christ and in God, this is the reason. You're not looking to him. And you can't look to him by going to church once every six weeks or four weeks or reading your Bible every great once in a while or praying just when you get in trouble. It must be a daily day in, out, setting your eyes upon Christ. Because it's only in that moment that you are reminded what he says in Hebrews 13, that he'll never leave you and never forsake you. So that means no matter how good you do, no matter how bad you do, no matter how many times you mess up, you're still a son or daughter of the king. The question is, are you going to look to him to remember? Or will you keep looking to yourself? Jesus says today, don't look to any other king but me. Don't look to any other king but me. Don't look to any other king but me.